This is Steve Carroll, and you're listening to the Ian Basic Podcast. This episode is part two for the anaphylaxis episode. In this episode, we'll talk about the general approach to the airway in the patient with anaphylaxis or really any upper airway obstruction. We'll review a stepwise approach to these airways so we can do the right thing for the patient. Some of the techniques I'll be talking about may be a little advanced and on the cutting edge of clinical care, but I think it's important to always have these techniques in the back of your mind. These airways can be the scariest airways that we encounter, so we need to be thinking about our approach ahead of time and not leave it until you have a critical patient in front of you. As always, this podcast doesn't represent the views of your opinions of the Department of Defense, the U.S. Army, or the Fort Hood Post Command. So let's go back to that sick patient with anaphylaxis. They have strider, they aren't moving air, and they look bad. You have given either IM or IV epinephrine, and they don't seem to be turning the corner. Anaphylaxis airways are some of the scariest airways out there, and you need to be able to act decisively and with a plan in order to have a good outcome. Even though I am talking about airway planning after epinephrine, it's really something that has to occur at the same time as the epi administration. You need to be gathering your airway equipment and formulating a plan in case the patient crashes. Let's go through a stepwise approach to the anaphylaxis airway. So while we are reviewing this, keep in mind that the main issue in anaphylaxis is upper airway edema, so this thought process will work for any patient in whom upper airway obstruction is concerned, such as angioedema. First, while we are gathering our equipment, we need to be pre-oxygenating the patient. For this, we'll place the patient on 15 liters of nasal cannula through the nose and 30 to 60 liters per minute via face mask. What you will want to do is to crank the O2 regulator on the wall above the 15 liters per minute to deliver 30 to 60 liters per minute to achieve truly high flow oxygen. The nasal cannula may be a little bit uncomfortable for the patient, but I promise it won't make their eyes blow out of their skull. You can also use BiPAP instead of the 9 rebreather mask if the patient will tolerate it. These are the techniques of no DSAT that has swept through emergency medicine in the past year. If you haven't heard about these techniques, then stop right now, go to embasic.org, and read the paper that started these techniques. I'll post a link in the show notes. While you are putting the patient on high-flow face mask and nasal cannula, make a rapid assessment of their airway. Does the patient have any edema of the lips, tongue, or soft palate that could obstruct the airway? Check the mouth opening and palpate the cricoid membrane. These patients are at high risk for a failed airway, so you need to palpate the cricoid membrane and use a marker to pre-mark it ahead of time in case you have to do a crike. The next thing to do is to prepare all of your equipment. Have tubes with stylets loaded in the usual size and several sizes smaller. This is not the time to be saving healthcare dollars by only opening one size of tube. Make sure you have at least two sizes smaller VT tubes out of the plastic, loaded with stylets, and test the balloon ahead of time. For example, let's say that you would use a 7.5 ET tube on a particular patient. You'll want to have a 7.0 and a 6.5 ET tube out and ready to go in case you are unable to pass the 7.5 due to airway edema. You'll also want to make sure you have a bougie out and available to pass the tube. You may only get a small opening to get into the trachea, so use the bougie to get in there, and then railroad the tube on top of it. Have this out and ready for an assistant to hand it to you if needed. You also want to have a supraglottic airway device such as an LMA available. Upper airway edema can limit the usefulness of these devices, but they may buy you just enough time to reoxygenate the patient 
in case of a failed airway, so have them available. Finally, have your supplies for a crike out and ready. Have a bougie, scalpel, and 6.0 ET tube at the ready to do a crike if needed. Once you have your airways ready, prepare everything such as the suction, bag valve mask, and tidal CO2, and medications. The choice of medications and general approach to an upper airway issue like anaphylaxis is a tricky one, so let me take you through my thoughts of the matter using the latest and greatest of airway techniques and thought processes. The first thing to consider is whether you will do a full RSI and paralyze the patient. You should be very hesitant to give paralytics to the patient because the patient's muscle tone may be the only thing preventing total airway occlusion. If the airway totally occludes, it can lead to rapid bradycystolic arrest that won't be fixed until you get an airway secured. Before we go further, get this in your mind now. RSI is not the solution to every airway problem. This is one situation where doing an RSI may kill your patient if you're not careful. There are techniques that work much better for upper airway obstruction, so let's review them here. Here is how I would approach this airway. I would do delayed sequence intubation, or DSI, a technique also popularized through the MCRIT podcast. Most of these patients will be agitated, and if they aren't, then I would be super scared that they are tiring and seconds away from a respiratory arrest. In order to calm these patients and get them maximally pre-oxygenated, give them a full dissociating dose of ketamine well before you will make an attempt on an airway. So to do DSI, give the patient 1 to 2 milligrams per kilogram of ketamine IV. I like to give at least 1.5 milligrams per kilogram, so that is 100 milligrams in the average 70 kilogram adult. Make sure the ketamine is pushed slowly to avoid the complication of apnea. In about 30 to 60 seconds, you will have a calm and dissociated patient who will allow you to place high-flow oxygen or BiPAP for pre-oxygenation. They will maintain their airway tone and reflexes, but they will be nice and calm. Now this is not to say that you can get complacent and take your time getting ready. There have been rare cases of apnea and arrest caused by ketamine, so you need to be prepared to act instantly if that happens. Once you have the patient calm, formulate a plan with everyone in the room. This is not the time to be a hero. If you have anesthesia backup available, call for it. If you can get extra hands to help you out, then do it. Just make sure to keep control of the room. In my mind, you have three possible options here without taking the patient to the OR. Ketamine-only sedation, full RSI, and an awake crike. Let's go through each option one by one. If you're going to use ketamine only for an awake look, there are a few things you can do to maximize your chance of success. You can give nebulized lidocaine through the non-rebreather mask or BiPAP, and you can also give a dose of Zofran, aka Dancitron. I've read a small study in dental patients that shows that Zofran can blunt the gag reflex, so it certainly can't hurt. Before you go to make an attempt, make sure you have a double setup for the airway. This is a concept that Ruben Strayer of emupdates.com has written about that I think is brilliant. I'll link to his website in the show notes. This is a technique that is used frequently in the OR for anticipated difficult airways, but I haven't really seen it used a lot in the emergency department. The idea is simple but profound. Have one provider attempting the airway from above, while another provider stands at the patient's side with the neck fully prepped and ready to go for a crike if necessary. This avoids the fumbling around and chaos that comes when the crike is unexpected and not prepared for. If the patient suddenly desaturates, 
and can't be bagged back up, this is a critical situation. Before the patient goes into arrest, the provider at the neck can do a rapid surgical airway. One technique that can help you out with this is to pre-inject the patient's neck with lidocaine with epinephrine. This provides not only pain control, but local hemostasis from the epinephrine. I talked with an ENT colleague recently, and she said that they pre-inject Lido with epi on all of the routine trachs that they do. So if you have the time, give this a shot. If you don't end up doing the surgical airway, then no harm, no foul. The now intubated and sedated patient now just has a numbed up neck for the next few hours. So if you go with sedation only or full RSI, you want to have that double setup in place before you start an attempt. Make sure that the person at the top of the bed has plenty of help with using the bougie or external laryngeal manipulation. You'll want to quiet the room as much as possible to make sure everyone can communicate in case the airway goes south. If an attempt fails, quickly try bagging the patient, but have a low threshold to do a crack. I realize I may be a bit of a cowboy by saying this, but personally, I would rather have a hole in my neck than die or lose 10 or 20 IQ points from hypoxia. Finally, let's talk about a concept that is far from widely accepted, but I think is always a good one to have in your back pocket, the awake crike. This may seem like a crazy idea, but it could save your patient's life. I wouldn't call this a widely accepted technique, but it may be the right thing to do in a patient with a severe upper airway obstruction when even sedation-only intubation from above may not even be an option. I'll link to a case report in the show notes that talks about this technique in the setting of a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the face, where the providers thought that the orotracheal intubation would be impossible. One quick caveat before we talk about this technique. If the patient is stable enough to make it to the operating room for a formal tracheostomy, that may be the best option, so consider that before you head down this road. If the airway obstruction is not severe, anesthesia may be able to do a flexible fiber optic intubation, but make sure to not waste too much time on this or let the patient deteriorate any further. However, if the patient is not truly stable or you don't have good surgical backup, then you should do this in the emergency department. We'll talk a little more about fiber optics at the end of the episode. To do an awake crike, you will need to give the patient IV ketamine to get them sedated but still breathing on their own. The case report I mentioned used the subdissociative dose of ketamine, but I don't see why you shouldn't go ahead and fully dissociate the patient. This will get the patient calm and also take away the pain associated with the procedure. Make sure to palpate the cricothyroid membrane and prep the neck with either betadine or chlorhexidine. After you have prepped the neck, mark your landmarks for the crike with a marker. Make a vertical mark for the midline and a horizontal mark for the membrane in the shape of a cross. You can use any permanent marker. The tips are sterile and do not support bacterial growth, so it's okay to use the marker even after you've prepped the neck with disinfectant. Before you make your incision, pre-inject the neck with lidocaine with epinephrine for local anesthesia and to control bleeding. One thing most people don't realize is that crikes are almost always a bloody mess, even with pre-injection. You have to consider that you're cutting into a very vascular area and it will bleed to the point where you should consider a crike to be a blind procedure. This means that you will use your tactile feel to incise the membrane and pass the bougie. Keep this in mind so you don't start relying on seeing the landmarks to pass the tube. After all that is done, make a vertical incision through the skin. Use your finger to palpate down the cricothyroid membrane. 
Place your fingers above the membrane and stabilize the thyroid cartilage and make a horizontal incision through the membrane. As an alternative, you can also go with a straight horizontal incision without the vertical incision. Just make sure to not cut too far laterally or you can cut the vessels in the neck. Once you have made your incision, use your finger to dilate the hole and keep it in there. Next, pass a bougie next to your finger and into the trachea. Go slowly so you feel the clicks of the tracheal rings and advance it until you feel hold up. If you don't feel the clicks of the tracheal rings or hold up, you have created a false passage that is not in the trachea. Creating a false passage is surprisingly easy to do, so use the bougie to make sure you are actually in the trachea. Once a bougie is in, you know that it is in the trachea, so you can leave it there and pass a 6.0 ET tube into the trachea until the balloon just enters the trachea. Don't put the tube in too far. Keep in mind that you will be right at the carina given your position in the trachea. After the tube is in, inflate the balloon, hold onto the tube, and carefully remove the bougie. Once the bougie is out, connect it to a BVM with an end-tidal CO2 detector, and make sure you have color change. Now that you have the crike done, you will now have a long ET tube sticking out of the neck. This can be secured to the side of the patient's body, or you can trim the ET tube. Just make sure to trim above the small tube that supplies air to the balloon, or else you will render the balloon useless. An alternative to using an ET tube is to use a shyly, which is a kind of tracheostomy tube. You can still use a bougie to make sure the shyly goes into the trachea. Just make sure you don't lose the ET tube adapter, or you will render this useless as well. There is a great video on YouTube of doing a bougie-assisted crike on a cadaver. It's done by Dr. Darren Brody, an airway expert from the University of New Mexico. I'll post a link in the show notes. It's a short five-minute video, and it shows how to do this technique really well. Before we wrap this episode up, let me talk briefly about fiber optics for innovation. Whenever emergency medicine providers talk about how they manage upper airway obstruction, someone almost inevitably mentions using fiber optics and just leaves it at that. This ignores the reality that EM providers usually don't have a lot of experience with these devices, and they may not even be available in your emergency department. Don't get into the trap of thinking that fiber optic innovation is easy to do. It takes lots of practice, and you may not be the best person to perform it. This is where your anesthesia colleagues may be able to help out with equipment and expertise, so get them involved if you have that option. However, in emergency medicine, we always have to be prepared to do all of this on our own, so this is why I'm not going to talk about fiber optic innovation in this episode. So that's it for this episode. Since this was a short episode, I'm just going to review the big take-home points. First, don't automatically RSI patients with upper airway obstruction. Carefully consider a plan with all your resources and avoid paralyzing these patients at all costs. Second, have another provider always ready to do an immediate surgical airway if you make any attempt from above. Finally, Keep in mind that a formal tracheostomy in the OR or an awake crike in the ER is almost always an option if you think that there is no way you can avoid a surgical airway. I do have one quick announcement before I sign off. I took the opportunity recently to update the links page on embase.org with some more great websites and podcasts that I like to read and listen to. I know that there are a few pre-med listeners out there, so for you I'd like to give a special recommendation to medical school headquarters. This is a great website and podcast that can help you out in your road towards applying to medical school, so check it out. You can find the links to this website and all the others at embase.org links. 
that's all I have for now. Until next time, this is Steve Carroll for the Basic Podcast, signing off.